Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Well, here we go. Second to the last week in 1 John, we're looking at chapter 5, those first five verses. We're going to take them a verse at a time. And again, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open uh, as we do that. Uh, last week in this series, we covered 1 John 4, 8 through, I'm sorry, 7 through 18. We talked about the principle of false consensus effect. And then we talked about uh, the five characteristics of, of biblical love, which would be cost, sacrifice, commitment, covenant, and empathy. And again, I want to just hear from John himself the purpose that he gives us for writing this letter. It's in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. We'll look at that next week. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So again, John writes the gospel as an evangelical tool to tell people about Jesus and hope that they believe. He writes the, uh, the letter of 1 John uh, to encourage people in their faith and to affirm their faith and to help them understand what a life of faith looks like. And that's what we've been studying for the last 10 weeks, two weeks to go. Here we go, verse 1 of chapter 5, I'll reread it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Jesus is the Christ. Not, it's not Jesus Christ here, which is what we usually see, but Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? Why is that in there? We throw that word Christ around all the time, but we often don't stop to really try to understand it. So I want to take a minute to peruse it. Uh, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that word is Messiah. So that's where we get the English word Messiah. And then in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's the word Christos, but they both mean the same thing. It means anointed one. So then the next question should be, okay, well, that doesn't clear anything up. What does anointed one mean? Well, here you go. The anointed one means the one God has selected and purposed to carry out his mission of salvation. In other words, the anointed one is Savior. The anointed one is Savior. And it is only in Christ that we have this salvation. So as the Savior, those who would believe in him, we also then submit to him as Lord. God calls us also to submit to him. Uh, we sang that song, I Just Want to Please You. And that's a song about submitting to God so that we uh, please him. Jesus is Lord, and he's not just Lord of the manor, he's Lord of the universe. There, there is not a single maverick molecule outside of his sovereignty. And so John writes in verse 1 that if you believe in Jesus as Christ, you have been born of God. And again, that's nothing new. Probably four or five times in this series, we've already referred back to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, for this story. And I'll read it again. 
there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's buttering up Jesus, and Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter, doesn't even answer that buttering up. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. And all of this leads to wrapping up verse 1 with this statement that John makes. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So this is yet another way of saying John loves to circle back and repeat things over and over. This is another way of saying what we've been saying all along. If you love God, you will love others. You can't, you can't have one without the other. And yet, I don't know if you've noticed, it seems to me, I've been around this stuff for 38 years now, it seems to me that we Christians tend to struggle the most with other Christians. Isn't that odd? Why is that? Why is that? Now, I've thought about that a lot. I've read a few articles. Doesn't mean I'm right, but I do have a strong opinion about this. I think it partly has to do with, in general, how, and like I said, the research has shown that we do this as human beings. I think it has partly to do with the fact that we tend to treat those who are closest to us in the most uncharitable ways. You can treat a food server who you're never going to see again in this totally gracious way and then turn right around to the person that you're eating with, which is an intimate act, eating a meal with somebody, and start to you know, drive really hard on them. That is true, though, but we tend to have so much trouble with each other all the time. You've probably heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that? Some of you are married, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to talk about this right now. Okay. Ah! Okay, it's one of those things that we know is true, but we hate to admit it. But what John is trying to get at here and wants to get at here is that it should be that true that for people in the gospel, familiarity would not breed contempt, but it would breed intimacy and generosity and mercy and vulnerability and tenderness. And it just, again, marriage, I think, is an example. Marriage should not be as antagonistic and as dissonant as I often see as a pastor, but rather it should be the most charitable and safe place that anybody can be. That's what marriage should be for people. And that's what God would like for us, and that would expand to the church, that would expand to our relationships with other Christians as well, and even beyond. And it's one of the reasons that, that God sent his son. And that leads into verse 2, where John writes, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Oh boy, here we go. We're going to talk about obedience. So Jason mentioned the B word. I am going to mention the O word, obedience. People hate that word. But I think that this is really helpful for us to understand, and it's one of the things that, that um, John is getting at here. Obeying God is an act of love toward others. Obeying God is an act of love towards others. Now, that might raise the question, well, how? How is that true? Well, here you go. If we obey God, we won't steal, cheat, or lie. Those are unloving things that we do to other people. 
But if we don't do that, that's in effect we're showing love to other people by not doing those things. Those things hurt other people. We also, if we obey God, we won't gossip or bear false witness or covet what others have. Again, if we, when we do those things, those things hurt other people. It's unloving, but when we don't do it, it's a way of showing love. Here you go. If we obey God, we will celebrate with them and rejoice with them when they rejoice, and we will mourn with them when they mourn. That's a really good thing, and that's a way that we serve others and we show love to others by doing uh, that. It helps others. And when we obey God, we will serve others and submit to them. And these things also help other people. It's an act of love. It shows love to other people. And so I would ask the question, how is it that, that it's not loving to obey the commands of God? How is it not loving to others when we are listening to God, submitting our wills to his, and following his teaching? And that leads us into verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because there's two things that we need to unpack. We know we love God when we submit to him and keep his commandments. And second of all, following his commands is not a burden. It's not a burden. You know, we talk a lot about grace here at Redemption Church, and we should because that's the gospel. Grace is unmerited favor, that Jesus went to the cross for us as payment for our sin, and we get to just receive that great gift of, of standing righteous before God because of the finished work of Christ. That is a great gift. It's unmerited favor. As our founding pastor Tom used to like, like to ask, what can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. You bring nothing to the table. He did it all. And that's, and that's grace, and that's a beautiful thing. It's nothing but Jesus. It is a false gospel to teach that Jesus needs our help in order to be saved. Any iteration of the gospel that is Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that is a false gospel. Anytime somebody says, yes, Jesus is great and he went to the cross, but if you don't do this, if you're not doing this, that is a false gospel. It's that familiar song to some of us anyway, who are a little bit older, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's Jesus' own testimony on the cross, the last words before he died. It is finished. There's nothing else anybody can do. But, but, John and Jesus both say in the Bible, if you love God, you're also going to keep his commandments. And that keeping God's commandments is a response to and demonstration of the fact that God loves us. So that begs the question, John writes this here, is John a legalist? Is John teaching a works-based salvation? And the answer is no. John writes this, and Jesus taught this in the Gospels, because they both know what genuine love is actually. They both know that genuine love is cost and sacrifice, commitment, covenant, and empathy. And as the New Testament scholar Leon Morris also chimes in on this. He says, genuine love is also busy. Now, I know that word can scare a few of you. You're like, I'm busy enough already. I don't need to hear this. Okay, genuine love is busy, though, 
Because genuine love calls something out of us that needs to be called out of us and that is called out of us because of the gospel of Jesus, because he has loved us enough to go to the cross. Genuine love is busy because it's always looking for ways to express love by serving others. Because that's what Jesus did. Genuine love is busy because genuine love delights in doing what is best for others. And not only that, but doing things that brings delight and joy to the beloved, but it also brings joy and delight to you. It's kind of counterintuitive. And then genuine love is busy because genuine love is, as I said, costly, sacramental, uh, sacrificial, committed, covenantal, and empathetic. And finally, genuine love is busy because it's not passive. Genuine love is an active verb. We act out of love. We are called. It's, it's been, if you're in Christ, that character of love has been imputed to you. It's been imputed to me, and we begin to act and serve out of that love that's been imputed to us. So it's active. And, and listen, let's just, let's just get down to brass tacks here. I'm a human. I'm a human being, which means I love I love comfort, convenience, and idleness. Anybody with me on this? Just love it, okay? And here you go. I love it when other people are thinking about and serving me. I love that. That's just, that, just, that just brings me great joy, and they're taking care of Am I the only one? I don't think so. But here's the thing, and it's counterintuitive. When I approach especially, for instance, my relationship with Jackie, my wife, but this is true of other relationships too, but especially because it's the closest relationship I have with my marriage with Jackie. If I approach it in a manner that exemplifies Philippians chapter 2, and here it is, where Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. When I approach my... People say there's not a lot in the Bible about marriage. That works in marriage, by the way, okay? But if when I approach my relationship with Jackie or anybody else through that grid, through that lens, the end result is not only helpful to the other person, but it brings considerable joy and delight for me as well. That's counterintuitive, but it's also true. It's weird. Jackie receives this submission but I also receive great benefits by living for her. But that submission to Jackie, remember that submission that I have to Jackie and her needs and that Philippians 2 grid that I use is not just a submission to Jackie, it's what God calls me to do. So I am submitting to God as I am submitting myself to Jackie and to others as well. So in my relationships with Jackie and others, for this to work, and this is just strictly metaphorically speaking, but for this to work, when somebody needs something, what I have to do is I have to grab the remote and hit the pause button. Even though it's at the most important and interesting part of the episode, I have to hit the pause button on the remote. I have to get up off of the couch. I love my couch. I have a favorite spot on my couch. Everybody in my family knows my spot on the couch, including our dog, Kevin. And yes, we have a dog named Kevin. He knows that's my spot, and he tries to take it every time I get up, and I have to kick him out. I have to get up off the couch, which is terrible. And then I have to roll up the top of the bag of Cheetos that I was eating and put a clip on it and put it away and then go serve somebody else. This is tough. I'm telling you metaphorically speaking. 
Whatever, it is, whatever your, your show couch Cheeto thing is, that's what you have to submit that to. Okay? But it's worth it. I have found it's worth it. And by the way, it, it's taken me decades to figure this out. You can ask Jack. She's in the 9 o'clock today, so you can ask her afterwards. Uh, this wasn't exactly happening in our first couple of years of marriage. Does it happen ever now? A few times. Okay, good. All right. So here's what we're trying to get at, though. This is really important. Love and law are not enemies. Love and law are not enemies. They are not inharmonious. In fact, they are complementary. They're covenantal. Tim Keller puts it this way. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. And if that's true, and it is, that leads us quite easily into this second question that this verse raises. How is it that keeping God's commands is not a burden? How is it not burdensome? Isn't that one of the first complaints we hear and we have and that other people have against keeping God's commandments, that they're hard to do, they're inconvenient, they're no fun, uh, they don't understand my personal situation, and they're generally a huge burden to have to obey those commands? Well, first, in the midst of this truth, some of us don't necessarily need an attitude change, but we do need a perspective change. When, when we become believers in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and the resurrected life of Jesus is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So think about this. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death through the cross and the resurrection. And so if we would only change our perspective from one that centers on us to one that centers on the Holy Spirit in us, the results will surpass all human understanding. And this power and humility and joy that we have access to in Christ changes lives. It'll change your life. It's, it changes my life. And the burden of God's commands retreats. The burden of God's commands retreats. I just spoke about this a few minutes ago. The burdens of his commands are, in practicality, reduced because his commands are actually good for us and good for others. But we also have to be willing to try. It's amazing how many people won't try it because they already know that it's not going to work and it's not going to be good for them and, they, and they're not going to like it. I, I've, always, I've always been interested when people criticize things that they've never experienced or don't understand. Over the years, I've tried not to be one of those persons, tried very hard. It's kind of like a, few month, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned a movie review that I once read, and when I got to the end of the review, I found out that the person hadn't even seen the movie but had written a review on it. Okay, I don't, I don't really, I don't understand that, okay? So people who have never experienced something but they have an opinion, they criticize it, uh, whatever. You know, let me just say this. Uh, at least I have tried a bowl of Lucky Charms, so I know for a fact that they're just wrong, okay? I, I just know, I know that for a fact. I've experienced it. But anyway, um, I've been teaching as an adjunct instructor at Paradise Alley Community College for 23 years. So my classes are, are, are always filled with 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And because it's communication that I'm teaching, 
and, and I'm, I'm trying to exemplify the theories, concepts, and principles with real life examples, I end up talking about my relationship with Jackie all the time. And, and what the, the students begin to receive over the course of a 16-week semester is that I really like my wife, and she somehow likes me, and that we've been married for now, over the years, now we're up to 36 years we've been married, and you would be surprised, maybe not, but I think you would be surprised at how many of these 18, 19, or 20-year-old students, many of them, will eventually, over the course of the semester, begin to get concerned and even somewhat antagonistic and aggressively, and eventually they will come up to me and they'll go, I don't understand how you could possibly do that. How could you, one person for 35 years? How, I, I, that, that doesn't, I need variety in my life. I could never commit myself to one person for that many years, or even three or four years. I don't know how you do it. It's amazing, these conversations I have. And my response is always the same. Well, have you ever tried it? And then I ask them, how is it that you feel compelled to criticize something that I can tell you is beautiful, and you have never experienced it? You haven't tried it. Maybe you should try it. Of course, their response is always, I'm not going to spend 36 years finding out what I already know. I can't commit myself to one person for 36 years. But in Christ, you can. See, that kind of opens doors. That opens doors. But they've never experienced it. Reminds me, um, there's a very similar scene in the movie uh, Goodwill Hunting. Sometimes movies actually mirror real life. And by the way, I bring up Goodwill Hunting. I would say Goodwill Hunting's not even in my top 50 movies. It, for me, it was like, eh, okay. But there's one iconic scene in that movie. Have anybody seen Goodwill Hunting? Like a lot of you, okay? And for many of you, I know, it's like your favorite movie, and you're going to be mad and send emails and all this stuff. How can you not like that movie, you godfather freak? So anyway, <laughs> anyway um, it's okay, but there's this one scene, and whoever's seen the movie knows this scene. It's when uh, Dr. Sean, uh, Robin Williams, and uh, Will Hunting, Matt Damon, are outside, and they're on a bench. And... And Dr. Sean has been, has been growing weary of Will's arrogance and, and his, uh, his power trips and the fact that Will Hunting has this belief that he can size up, comprehensively size up somebody in about 30 seconds and know everything he needs to know about that person. And finally, just, uh, Dr. Sean just lays into him and he says this, Will, you think you know me, but you have no idea. You looked for 10 seconds at a painting I painted, and you think you know who I am and that you can judge me. You know, Will, if I were to ask you about women, you would tell me who you like and maybe even who you have slept with, but you have no idea what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You think you can read a book about Michelangelo and know what it's like inside the Sistine Chapel but you've never in person gazed upon the texture of the actual painting nor smelled the history of the chapel as you stand in it. You don't know. So I bring up these two examples to say, and yet we do this all day long with God's commands. I hear this all the time about what God calls us to. Well, I'm not going to do that. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds irksome. How does God even know the struggles in my life? If God knew, really knew the struggles in my life, he would never ask me to do that. You know, I even heard about somebody once a few years ago who tried Christianity and they said it didn't work. I'm not going to do that. 
But the truth is, it's not ridiculous. And it's for our good and God's glory. And so here's the deal. When we love God and we love others, we are keeping God's commands and we actually live in victory, which leads us into these last two verses. Here's verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Being a Christian and keeping God's commands and loving others is actually the only way to overcome the world. People have been trying to overcome the world for millennia. It doesn't seem to be working. But, but I will also say, Scripture says, nothing is impossible with God through Jesus Christ. And if we are people of God's word, we should look at this verse and embrace it for its promise and its hope. And oh, by the way, didn't Jesus also teach this? This is maybe the 10th time we've cited this verse out of the Gospel of John during this series in 1 John. It's John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But then he says, take heart, because I have overcome this world. So if you are in Christ, if I am in Christ, we have also overcome this world. We live as overcomers. And furthermore, you should see before we read the last verse, verse 5, the word translated overcome is used three times in these two verses. Three, that means that word could be important. Anybody know what that Greek word is for overcome? It's the word Nike. It's transliterated or spelled in English. It is spelled N-I-K-E. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Nike. Okay, so now you know why Nike named their company Nike. Okay, but it's the word Nike. It means victory or to triumph against all odds. Victory or to triumph against all odds. And the noun form is victor. You are the victor. Funny thing is, is that in using this word, John is actually being subversive here because it's, the word is rooted in history. From about 800 to 300 BC, when the Greeks were very, very powerful and they pretty much um, ruled the, the earth, whenever there was a battle to go and fight or they needed to defend themselves, uh, the Greeks had developed this thing called the phalanx. You've probably read about it in history classes and, and stuff, but the phalanx was this tightly arrayed formation of hundreds or even thousands of men with the shields and their weapons, and, and they could overcome any enemy, and they could also protect any, um, any property that they needed to protect, and it was very, very effective. But when they were getting ready to fight a battle or to defend themselves, and they would line up in their phalanx, one of the things that they would always do before the battle would be engaged is that they would, in unison, take their weapons and pound them on the ground and chant in unison, Zeus, Soter, Kai, Nike. Zeus, Soter, Kai, Nike. What they're saying is it's a chant to the god Zeus, their god Zeus, Soter is savior, Nike is victor. Zeus, you are savior and victor. What John is saying here by using that word is Jesus is the one who is the savior and victor. He is the truer, uh, uh, better savior and victor than any other god that you can have. And then that just leads us into the crescendo verse, which is verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So human beings, we love this idea of overcoming, don't we? We, we, we want to be overcomers. You know, you, you think about narratives, stories, books, myths, movies, legends. So much of them 
are made for and about those who overcome. Stories of inspiration, stories of, of, of victory for the person who isn't supposed to have the victory, the underdog, uh, coming-of-age stories. You know, I, I admit, I, I was actually alive and, and went to the, the theater screening. I'm old enough to have gone to the theater screening of the first Rocky movie. I like that movie. It was really good. It's not necessarily in my top 50, but I will tell you, Cinderella Man and Seabiscuit are both in my top 20. I love those stories. Those are overcomer stories. All of them are. So I get it. But we need to remember that's just temporal stuff. It's fun. It's inspirational. It is certainly worth watching, reading, and enjoying. Some of them are even true stories, Seabiscuit and Cinderella Man, but they're not eternal. And the only arena that matters essentially and existentially and eternally, there is just one overcomer and only one path to overcoming, and that is through Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection. Something else here, if you'll remember, we talked about this in the Romans 8 series, and we've mentioned it in this series. If you have the Son, if you have Jesus, that means you also have the Father and you have the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. You can't have only one. There's no solace in what I hear so many people uh, out in the public sphere saying, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus was God. Well, if that's the case, then you're not born again, and you actually don't believe in God, and you're not going to become one who overcomes, at least not eternally. It reminds me of one of my favorite Tom Schrader stories, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, he was having breakfast for the first time with somebody who was attending his church. East, this was back in the East Valley Bible Church days in Gilbert. Having breakfast with somebody attending that church, for, uh, having breakfast with them for the first time. The guy had been attending the church for six or eight weeks or whatever. And During their conversation, Tom got the idea that maybe this guy actually, just based on what he was saying, maybe he's not a Christian. Maybe he doesn't know Jesus, and he ought to start probing in that area. So at one point, he looked at him, and he said, are, are, are you a Christian? And the guy gave him this classic answer, just classic answer. He said, yes, I am a Christian, but not in the biblical sense. <laughs> do, do you see how we construct this stuff, though? You see how we get led astray? Okay, it's a classic answer, classically wrong. See, here's the thing I really like about verse 5. It's the culmination of this five-verse paragraph that explains to us the characteristics of those who are overcomers in Christ. We see in this, in this paragraph that overcomer, the overcomer is one who believes, he has faith, she has faith in Christ. They place their trust in Jesus, and Jesus has overcome this world. The overcomer loves. They love God, and they love others. You will live a life as an overcomer when you love God and love others. The overcomer obeys. In response to God's grace, the overcomer is aware of God's commands, desires to keep God's commands, and finds that when they do keep God's commands, they're not as irksome as bird or burdensome as they might have thought. And finally, the overcomer knows the enemy and stands up to the enemy. The overcomer knows there is an enemy, knows the enemy, and stands up to the enemy by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and resurrected Christ, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And remember, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he who is 
in you is greater than he who is in the world. We are overcomers because God is with us. And just to be clear, who is the enemy? Well, it's Satan. He's the primary enemy. But just a few of the things that cascade from Satan, and you can identify these things as well, false gods or idols cascade from Satan. False god, an idol, is anything that you place in importance above the righteousness of Christ, Christ on the cross and resurrected. That's a false god. So a false god can be anything that's good, just elevated too high. False teaching is also from Satan, and that's a huge issue with John. We've talked a lot about that in this series. And if you read through the rest of the New Testament letters, you find that that is a recurring theme through the New Testament letters. We'll see that in the Revelation uh, series as well, when, when uh, John takes down the letters from Jesus that he has to write to the churches there. False teaching is a big problem, always has been, always will be, and that is straight from Satan, and then false gospel. False gospel is anything that is Jesus plus something else. There's a little bit of truth there, but then I'm going to add something else to it. That's a false gospel. This is what John has proclaimed to us every week in this series. Jesus is Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. And if you don't know Jesus, maybe you should get to know him. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy and merciful God, we again just thank you for your truth that you give to us through your word. We thank you for the grace that you have given us through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you for the joy that we have because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Thank you for that. So God, as we, as we look at these words that you have recorded for us through John, I just pray that you will also give us the courage to embrace them and to be able to live by them. And I ask that we would be people who would truly love you and love others. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.